Acts. Uh, we're in our third week of Acts this morning, and um, we have been in the first four chapters in two weeks. We have blazed the trail, and uh, you have hung with me, and I appreciate that. And so we are kind of transitioning this morning. We're, you know, in the first four chapters, what we see is just a monumental movement of the Holy Spirit. We have said the last two weeks that the book of Acts is really the story of God's Spirit empowering God's people to fulfill God's mission, to accomplish the Great Commission, to go and to make disciples. And we see that all the way through Acts chapter 1 through 28. Disciples being made, God's Spirit at work in people, through people. And in the first couple of chapters, we saw the, the launch of the church. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and empowers them and, and shows up and makes them into Jesus' witnesses. And Peter stands up and preaches and thousands are saved. And, and then we saw over in chapter 3 last week that a lame beggar who had been begging for years in the same spot outside the temple gets healed. In Jesus' name, by Jesus, Peter and John look at him and say, In the name of Jesus, rise up, walk, and he does. And he begins to run around and causes quite the commotion. And a large crowd of thousands gather around. Peter looks, sees the opportunity, and says, Now sounds like, sounds like a good time to preach the gospel. And he begins to preach the gospel, and thousands more get saved. By this time, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders and the powers that be at that time in Jerusalem, did not like what was going on. And so they begin to arrest these guys and tell them and threaten them and tell them, you can't do this. You can't preach in this name. And we saw their boldness last week to say, listen, there's power in the name of Jesus. We're going to be bold with the name of Jesus. And they, they boldly uh, preach Jesus there. And then they go, they get together with the rest of the church. They pray for continued boldness. And they go out, it told us last week, and they just continue boldly preaching the word. Church has looked, the church at Jerusalem, First Baptist Church, Jerusalem, um, or First Church Jerusalem, or whatever, right? Whatever your affiliation there.
seed in your life reveals that your heart at that time is compromised. It's a heart indicator. Just like someone that says, I'm going to give, but I'm going to give it over here, and I'm not giving through the church. Well, that's your decision. It's your money, but just don't say you love the church. Because Jesus says where your heart is, that's in your heart, your treasure, are located in the same place. And the thing is, if our heart's compromised and divided because we're filled with greed or we're filled with hypocrisy, which I think is the main thing at work here in this text, it means we've set up an idol in our heart. And that idol, idol might be approval. That's what theirs was, and it led to hypocrisy. Or it might be comfort, which can lead to the love of money and greed. But instead of looking to Jesus for your approval, instead of looking to Jesus for your comfort, we begin to look to other things for approval and comfort, and that's idolatry. That's at the very core of idolatry. Instead of trusting the Lord for those things, we trust in those things for those things. And it reveals that our heart's been compromised. So their heart was compromised. The second thing is, their sin revealed a lack of reverence for God. All through this text, people respond to what's happening with fear. Awe. The problem is Ananias and Sapphira didn't display any fear of God. Peter's actually appalled by their, their carelessness. He's like, why would you do this? You not know, you lied to the Holy Spirit, which means you lied to God. Notice, notice there he's calling the Holy Spirit God. He says, you didn't, you didn't lie to man, you lied to God. In three ways, three ways they showed lack of reverence to God. They lied to God, portraying God as supreme when he wasn't. They tested God. He says they agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. This was a time of incredible spiritual power in the church. Thousands being saved, people being healed, miracles taking place. F.F. Bruce writes that they deliberately conceived a plan to see how far they could go in presuming on the forbearance of the spirit of God. Let's see how gracious God's spirit is. They, they, they're testing the Lord. And thirdly, they used God. They took an act of worship and used it to actually glorify themselves. They leveraged a worship act for their own glory, and they died for it. See, worship is not worship if there's no awe, if there's no reverence, if there's no fear, if there's no humility before God. And giving is an act of worship. All stewardship is. And when we use it to gain approval of others, we show a lack of fear of God, and we presume upon His grace. When we take something like a worship act, like, like generosity, and we use it to gain the approval of others or to punish others or to manipulate others, we're tainting a worship act. And the thing is, a lack of reverence for God is a failure to treat God like God. Right? And we need to treat God like God in all of our life, including our stewardship. We give out of faith. We trust God to provide. We give in reverence to God, believing He's who He says He is. Now contrast them with the apostles. Now as you move on in chapter 5, the portion we didn't read, that's a similar story to what happened over in chapter 4 where they're arrested again. They're arrested and they continue to preach the gospel. I mean, God, let, God literally supernaturally lets them out of prison. And they're standing in front of the Sanhedrin again. And they're telling them, we told you to stop. We threatened you and told you to stop speaking in the name of Jesus and in verse 29 of chapter 5, this is how Peter and John and the gang, this is how they respond. We must obey God rather than men. That's the opposite of testing God. That's a, that's a fear of God. That's a reverence of God. There's man and there's God, right? 
God, we must, we must obey God rather than man because God is more important. God is supreme. God is, God is the one that our ultimate allegiance is to. And that idea that we must obey God no matter what is rooted in the fear of the Lord. And so when you really step back and look at chapter 5, you see a picture of people that feared God and two people that did not. And reverential awe is at the core of what it means to properly respond to God as God. The fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. And when we, instead of, instead of fearing God, fear man, fear failure, fear ridicule, fear rejection, anything other than God, we're acting as if we don't even really know who God is. Like we, don't even, like we wouldn't recognize him, right? Like we're just not treating him as God if we don't fear God. And if you're harboring sin, you're not walking in the fear of the Lord. That's a fearful place to be. There was, their sin ended in dire consequences. And sin always does. We always reap what we sow. The wages of sin is death. And sin always brings death. Sometimes it's death to a relationship. Sometimes it's death to a situation. Ultimately, it brings death in hell. Separation from God forever. If we don't come and, and are transformed by Christ. But there's always consequences for sin in our life. When we live like we're not going to reap what we're going to sow, we're always awakened to reality. And by the way they lived, they showed no reverence for God in this situation. Thirdly, their sin threatened the spirit-empowered community. It was a threat to the spirit-empowered community. I believe the main reason we have this story in Acts is that Luke wants us to see that the same community that was filled with love, unity, and generosity must be filled with holiness. I believe that's the main reason it's here. Commentators will point out that the story is wedged between two summaries of the Spirit's power on display in the community of faith. You see that at the end of chapter 4, and you see that in the portion we read in the middle of chapter 5, where the Spirit's working powerfully. Miracles are being done. Generosity is happening. People are being saved. And then right in the middle, you've got this story of people lying to the Holy Spirit and dying. And this story shows this threat to the spirit-empowered community. That the church's greatest threat is always from within. It's the heretic and the hypocrite that can most damage the church, not the persecutor, not the hater. You see it all through Acts. And we see it in churches today. You let heresy into a church, false teaching, heretical teaching, damnable doctrine into a church, it'll kill the church. It'll cease to be a church at some point if it doesn't deal with it. You let hypocrites and you let hypocrisy begin to taint a church. People won't take the church seriously anymore. And that's why you can see people persecuted all over the world, in other parts of the world, intense persecution happening. People still coming to Christ. The gospel's still spreading because the only real threat is within, with heretics and hypocrites and our own sin. Verse 11 of chapter 5 points out that great fear came upon the whole church and everybody that heard. See, it was the church that this place happened. He's highlighting the fear in the church, but also even in the surrounding community. See, this didn't happen to a pagan. <laughs> it, it, this, this didn't happen to just some, you know, atheist or agnostic persecutor of the church. This happened to professing Christians. The text doesn't tell us that they were or were not Christians, and I'm not going to presume to fill in what God didn't. The point is that God took this sin seriously and set an example to the church. In this moment, they certainly don't look like Christians. In a moment, a lot of people don't look like Christians. 
And maybe they weren't. I don't know. That's the sad part to the story. You can't read this story and know for sure. Peter confronted both of them in their sin. They conspired together, it says, but notice they were held accountable apart. And it's kind of a picture for us. We might sin in community, but we will stand before God one by one and give an account for our lives. And both of them were confronted. Ananias, as the head of the home, was confronted first, and then Sapphira gave an account. Because while God wants husband and wives to live in community and to, to, to function in their spirit-empowered roles, and he wants men to be leaders in the home, and he wants the wife to come alongside and submit to her husband, he does not want her to empower and help and go along with sin. There is a line that is to be drawn. And Sapphira did not draw that line. And she went with, and she was held to account for it all alone. And hypocrisy and greed and flagrant sins ultimately threaten the very fabric of the church. It affects the trust level. If we think that everyone's a fake, and a hypocrite, if things like the offering are used to try and gain approval and power instead of being displays of Christ-honoring generosity, it begins to tear at the very fabric of the community of faith. This story is like the New Testament version, I'd say, and other people would say as well, of the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. That story is an incredibly sad story. Of they go, Joshua leads them in uh, to, to go into a place to conquer it, and they're told they're not supposed to take any of the stuff. It's all going to be devoted to God. But Achan takes some of it and hides it in his tent. Then they go to the next battle, and they get whipped. A bunch of people die. And God lets Joshua know it's because there's sin in the camp. Somebody disobeyed. And the same Greek word used to translate in the, from the Hebrew to the Greek for their Bible back then, for what Achan did, was that word kept back, that we translate kept back. It's the same word that Luke uses here in Acts. Because he's probably, very possibly, purposely drawing the parallel for us. To show that the, some of the same things that plagued the people of God in the Old Testament plagued the people of God today. And what you see happening here is that sin in the Old Testament and the New Testament affects the community, the community of faith. In verse 11, you see the word church, ecclesia, used for the first time. It literally means called out ones. It's the first time it's used here, and it it's really defines who the church is. We're the called out ones. We're the ones that have been called out of the world to belong to Christ, to be distinct and separate from the world. And so willful, flagrant, unrepentant sin causes an identity crisis in the church. It prevents the church from living as the church. If we don't live as though we're called out, if we live as though we're one of, our message begins to fall on deaf ears. Because purity paves the way for spiritual power in the church. The text shows us that the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the church was not disconnected from the church's purity. In verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly done by the hands of the apostles. In verse 13, none of the deaths...